It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Today, we were blessed. Oh, Lord, I hate to say wonderful, but he's a, he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> Once you get to know him, you know, you get to eat I have, I have here my, a good friend of mine, so Griffin's River. We're going to have to edit this. <laughs> this is going to be the best part. Welcome to Count Time, Brother Griffin. Is it a welcome? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know what count time is, don't you? <laughs> okay. We're going to let you participate today. You know? I appreciate it. I really appreciate okay. it. <laughs> so, no, we thank you for being here. We, uh, we want to have another uh, great discussion. Your Last time uh, your wife was here, she gave us so much history, so much uh, insight on her upbringing, her upcoming between her dad, the different the community leaders, and all the things that she had to go through as a young woman, and even as a grown woman, still fighting the system, it's like it never ends. Yeah. But we'd like to thank you all for being here. Also, I want to make sure that y'all know that uh, Freya is also an author. Uh, she's an author, uh, 10, 12 books. I don't know, she's got children's books. She got a uh, book she's done on, a couple books she's done on former President Donald Trump, and she put her, her a memoir, personal memoir titled Swallowed Tears is the one that tells her story, same story as she shared a week or so ago on her upbringing here in Louisiana. We'd like to thank you again for being here and welcome to Count Time. Thank you. So Brother Griffin, we're going to start with you this time, man. <laughs> Just to get you, we want to help get him out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> It shouldn't take long, everybody. Let him tell a little two-minute story. No, but Brother Griffin. You're correct. I only got a couple minutes. You're right. But he's been in. He's been in the correction. Using the as correct, not an officer. Using you over department. Yeah. Louisiana correctional. Back in the days of Bird Kane, you were the uh, the Angola. You did what, what you did. What you worked, What you did at Angola? Remember something that took place at Angola back in the day. Well, I came on board. I was appointed by Edwin Evans, who was the governor at that time. Uh, I lost, the one we just lost in right. several months ago. 1976. I was appointed for April 1st, April Fool's Day. <laughs> you I, thought, you I, thought I, it was a joke? <laughs> no, it was a serious deal with Edwin. And, and you, uh, you was the only one uh, of us he appointed? Yeah, black, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, I was, uh, at that time, According to the Constitution of the state of Louisiana, you only have 20 agencies. And it's the governor's office, lieutenant governor, secretary, and all that. Then you have the other agencies like corrections, public safety, and what have you. Well, corrections was an agency by itself, and public safety, which is state police and fire, fire marshal, was another department. Well, they had to create another department, which they called DEQ. Well, DEQ was not, did not no, exist. No, it did not. So, what DEQ stands for? Uh, Department of Environmental Quality or something to that effect, I think. So they consolidated with corrections with public safety. And that's how it became the Department of Corrections and Public Safety to create a position for DEQ to come on board. Okay. So when I was appointed, I was appointed dire Deputy Director of Corrections. When they did the consolidations and what have you, then they changed the titles to secretaries. 
I became deputy secretary. Now, by right, that was a big thing back in those days. Well, yeah, for, yeah. For, 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 one, for a brother to be in that position, still a big thing. They yeah. just don't know how to do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, what had happened was, according to the flow chart, the secretary is supposed to be over corrections and public safety, which means the deputy secretary of public safety is over public safety. And the deputy secretary of correction is over corrections. But my immediate supervisor, which was Phelps, C. Paul Phelps, preferred staying with corrections. He had very little to do with public safety. But I, in essence, on paper, was supposed to be over corrections at that time. All right? So when I was appointed by Edwin, um, there were a number of individuals in contingents for that for the position. Uh, I reported on April the 1st and <laughs> it's an experience that uh, I reported with a bush and a goatee, number one. What, what do you mean a bush? I had an afro. <laughs> had a lot of hair in your oh, yeah, I did, quite a bit. All right, then. So when I reported, uh, we were located in the barracks right across the street from the Capitol, which is now been converted to housing for legislators, but we had that whole barracks for corrections. So that barrack was just for corrections. It was corrections, yeah. Which was originally was the, the for the was, for civil war. Yeah. 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 Right, right. We had corrections in there, and um, on one side, some of the legislators stayed, leadership stayed, like Bubba Henry and some others had their little apartments there. But the three-fourths of the four sides was all corrections. So when I reported, I drove up from New Orleans. I was coming out of New Orleans at the time. And uh, I drove up, and I drove around looking for a parking space. And uh, couldn't find one. So there was one available right there in front. So I parked in a spot. And it had John Nipper written on front of it, who was undersecretary. And so I parked and I got out the car and I was proceeding up the steps and right there we had inmates at that time that worked around corrections, doing mail runs and things of this nature. They were trustees. So there were about four or five inmates at the head of the steps right there in the mail room. So I started up the steps and when I took about four or five steps, they say, sir, sir, you cannot park there. I said, what do you mean I can't park here? Say that spot is for John Nipper. I said, okay. So I kept walking. They said, who are you? I said, my name is Griffin Rivers. And one of them said, ooh, you the nigga they've been talking about. <laughs> so when I got up the steps. There was a brother saying that? Oh, yeah. <coughs> so when I got up the steps, the whole office was white because I was only black. So when I walked in, they said, may I help you? I said, yes. I said, my name is Griffin Rivers. I'm the nigga y'all been talking about. <laughs> and that's the way I started with corrections. <laughs> you, started, you, you started your first day correcting everybody. <laughs> that was pretty good. Then. But prior to that, prior to that, after I had, uh, I was told at that time I was the only one in the state of Michigan, of Louisiana, that had a master's degree in criminal justice, black as well as white. When I went back to get my degrees, there was only four universities in the country that gave master's degrees. 
Michigan State, Florida, one in Texas. I don't know where the other. I forgot where the other one is. But uh, Michigan State was one of the four that gave the degrees. So when I came back here with my master's, I applied for a job of corrections. And I met with the, uh, what's his name, uh, personnel guy who was Herb Ruff over in Bridge City, the juvenile institution. I was living in New Orleans at the time. So when I met over there, he looked at me and looked at my resume and we talked and he said, I'm sorry, you're not qualified for anything. I said, what? He said, you're not qualified. I said, okay. Even though you have a master's degree? Yeah. I won't qualify anything. I said, all right. So needless to say, I said, okay. So I went on back over, back over the bridge to New Orleans. And then I called my judge, which is Judge James Galata. Now, Galata was my juvenile judge when I was a juvenile probation officer. Galata and I became very good friends because uh, there were no black judges at that time, juvenile. I think. This um, was mid 70s? Yeah, late 60s. Yeah. 60s. Yeah, yeah. See, I got out to service in 66, late 60s. What part of service you served? I was in the Army. I went to 63, I was in Vietnam and Thailand. Oh, okay, that's I, your excuse then, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. I was, over, I was over there when the bombing of the kids from Birmingham, oh. and I was over there when Kennedy was assassinated. But anyway, so uh, I uh, called Galata, and I told him what was going on. Well, Galata and I became close because I was a juvenile probation officer, and we used to go into court and determine what the sentence and what we're going, what's happening with this particular kid who was violating uh, the laws. So that particular day we were in there talking about cases and Galata got a phone call and he asked us to step out. And we stepped out. Then we came back in. He had tears in his eyes. He had been crying. So he told the other step out and asked me to stay in. So I asked him what was going on. He said, now nah, I know what y'all are going through. I said, what do you mean? He said, he's, a, he's a, of Italian descent. His daughter applied to join the sorority at Tulane, and they denied her because she was Italian. Uh -huh. And Galata was pissed. And we talked, and I said, yes, we go through this quite a bit, sir. And so that day, I don't care if a kid that killed a whole block of people, they all got probation. <laughs> <laughs> He was so angry. <laughs> he, was, he got mad at the system. Yeah. So he saw it. We oh, yeah. And see, there, back then, you had separate dockets. You had a white docket and you had a black docket. Black probation officer dealt with the black docket. White probation dealt with the white docket. And when was this? Uh, 60, I see. Uh, about 60, 66, 67. In New Orleans? In New Orleans. Louisiana. No, at that time we had what was called the brown bag parties. You were at the brown bag parties, aren't you? Now what is the brown bag party? <laughs> it's still going on somewhat today. Is that if there's a party going on in New Orleans, certain portions of New Orleans, they place a bag outside the door. You pay for brown bag that you get from the groceries. And if your complexion is darker than that brown bag, you can't come in that party. With your own people. With your own people. Uh, oh yeah. But, uh, even he, all this was going on. Oh, by by no now, means. But you were originally from Mobile, Alabama. Oh yes. <laughs> so how did you end up in New Orleans? I went to Dillard. 
So you, I got so my. But you grew up in, in Mobile. I grew up in Mobile, and uh, I had uh, the opportunity to go to FAMU to play in the band. I played oh, okay. trumpet at the time. Oh, okay. But I went to Dillard. And um, after I left Dillard, I decided to stay in New Orleans. And then from there, I went to the service. Well, I didn't finish school, number one, because uh, I was in my third, my last year. And Dillard at that time had a ruling on the books that uh, you had to get permission to get married. And I didn't ask permission to get married. So that my first wife and I both got put out. They put y'all out of the school because y'all got married. I got married, yeah. In the last semester, uh, I think it was around February or March, somewhere in there. I was supposed to graduate in May. So with that left, I went on to the surface. Then I came back to Dillon, finished my last semester, then became a juvenile probation officer. From there I worked with TCA, Total Community Action. From there I became a federal investigator for EEOC. And then from there uh, I went to school and got my master's. Came back from my master's, went with, went with uh, oh boy, went with the uh, criminal justice office in uh, under Dutch, under Dutch Morial. So you, so you worked for the group? Put it off for Moon, Moon Landry. Moon Landry, okay. So that's, uh, so that's why you had a great relationship with the Landry family. Then. You worked with well, I knew, oh yeah, I knew Moon quite well. Yeah. Yeah. And left Moon and so went. So what, what did you do under uh, Moon Landry? I was with the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council. And we dealt with uh, criminal uh, grants and stuff for the city that was came down from the Department of Justice. And I left there, and then I went to a program called Treatment Alternative Street Crime, or uh, TAS. They dealt with drug drug offenders and people on drugs, with Vernon Shorty and other individuals. We worked in the community. I was a desire project and that kind of stuff, you know. So. Vernon Shorty still around? Vernon died. Okay, I heard that name in a while. Vernon died. Vernon and I became very close. I hung out in desire quite a bit. Because uh, I came out of them streets, you know, and I tell everybody, you know, when I was with corrections here in correction in Michigan, I tell everybody, you know, if the wind's just blowing just a little bit to the right, I could have easily been where you are right now. Mm. You know, I was lucky because I was in the streets, you know. And so uh, I gave my mother a few hell, I ain't gonna lie. But anyway, so even in spite of those things, upbringing, and Mobile was kind of had a similar community like New Orleans, so I had a lot of similarities, right? Well, Mardi Gras started in Mobile. Mardi Gras started. Right. And New Orleans stole it, in a sense. <laughs> but Mardi Gras is Mobile. That's right. That's what I said. Yeah. It started in Alabama. Right. Mardi Gras right. moved into the, right. the New Orleans area. Yeah. Mardi Gras so, still goes on in yeah. Mobile. I, I know. So when yeah. I went there years ago, it was my first time. I'm doing Mardi Gras in Mobile, oh, no, no. right? Mobile was 1909, I think. Yeah. And they was they go they was going hard. The they still go people. hard. They throw moon pies and everything else. They still go hard. <laughs> the moon pie days been gone. I love, I just love the moon pie. Now, let's go back to Governor Evans. Now he said you showed up to work that day at the, down at the state capitol, and uh, you introduced yourself. So now from there you started working. In correction with governor under governor that was leadership. How long did you, did you, did you well, stay there? Well, the way up 
when I got to well, when, I got to back up a little bit, Dad, okay. because after I didn't get the uh, the opportunity to work for corrections, I, and I was dealing with Judge Galata, he called Elaine Hunt, who was over corrections at the time. Elaine Hunt's prison. Elaine, yeah, it's named after her. And Edwin hired Elaine over corrections because she was she was in she was an advocate against him because she was uh, in the uh, she was a news correspondent for the for the advocate here, and she used to write articles and and attack Edwin quite a bit. And that's how she got the job. She was an attorney by trade, but that's how she got the job. So he appointed her as over corrections. So I. Uh, I applied. After I didn't get the job, uh, um, Sydney and Lewis asked me what you want to do, man. I said, let's go for the number one job. Who is Sydney? Sydney Bartholomew, okay. who was a senator at the time, and Lewis Chauvinet was a state rep at the time. And um, so I said, okay, let's go for the number one job. So we applied for the number one job. Galata had, uh, Elaine had, Excuse me, let me back up a little bit. Elaine had Paul Phelps to give me a call after Galata had called Elaine about possible a job after I'd been turned down regular through the regular process. With a master's degree. With a master's degree. So Paul Phelps called me and asked me, introduced himself and said, I understand you're looking to work in correction. I said, yes. He said, what are you looking for? I said, whatever you have available. So he asked me, what kind of money? And I told him what I thought would be reasonable. And his response was, well, this is civil service. We don't pay that kind of money. Matter of fact, that's what I make. I said, well, I'll take that job, too. <laughs> so needless to say, the phone got silent. <laughs> so I ain't heard no more. Did you get that job? I ain't heard no more. So in the meanwhile, Elaine died. And that's when Lewis and them called and said, what you want to do? I said, let's go for the number one job. So I got a call uh, saying the governor want to meet with you in three days. So for three solid days and night, I was preparing my, my interview for Evan because I knew how sharp he was. <clears throat> he was sharp as a tack. I knew he knew what was going on. So I was preparing for Evan. So when it came time for the interview, Lewis, uh, Sidney and I drove up from New Orleans. And uh, we came in, and Ross Maggio was there. Uh, Burl King was there. Burl King was there. Uh, Maggio was there. Roma was there. Camille Cravel, all of us was there. So we sat up there for a whole hour, and everyone's outside playing tennis. So when he came in, he said, Camille, bring your man on back here. So he had a round table like this in the mansion. So he said, here, Mr. Rivers, have a seat right here. And Camille and everyone, uh, Lewis and him sitting in the back. So I said, well, you said he said, I understand you want to be here to Department of Correction. I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, I can't give you the number one job. I give you the number two job. Do you want it? Yes or no? <laughs> Straight to the point. Huh? And I've been paying for three three days for this man. I said, uh, uh, I start stuttering. <laughs> I said, uh, uh, yes, sir. <laughs> so he said, now let me tell you why I can't give you the number one job. <laughs> He said, you're black. No. He said, political, it'll kill me. That was just straight up to me. Oh, yeah. 
He said, now, if something happens to the number one man, you can get the job. I said, Governor, we can arrange that, too. <laughs> <laughs> you go gangster, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I was dealing with him. <laughs> had to deal with him straight up. So he said, uh, Camille, he said, when can you report? I said, in a couple of weeks. He said, Camille, when is uh, two weeks up? Camille said, April the 1st. I said, Governor, that's April Fool's Day. He said, you got problems with that? I said, no, sir. <laughs> no, sir. So that's it. That's where I got the job. That's how it happened. That's it. So I reported. That's, that's politics at its best. Well, I tried to do what the society say do. Experience, education, and you'll be promoted. But the state of Louisiana don't play that way. So I had to go to the political route. You better have some connections. Right. In New Orleans, I had political clout. I mean, I had all the behaviors in New Orleans. And as the state of Louisiana go, as New Orleans go, the state of Louisiana go. Okay, so that's I had my controls there. That's what New Orleans people feel, but the state don't feel Well, it may, may not be, but we had to vote stamp. We, we, we ain't going to give you that kind of well, stroke like y'all got it going. Because well, talk to me, that people run everything. How is that happening? No, they don't. <laughs> You may think you do. <laughs> no, Louisiana people say they run everything. Okay. Well, anyway, that's how it, that's how it came about. So I, I reported, and um, now what was the number two job? It was me. A number two at that time was deputy director of corrections. But then again, as I said, they did the consolidation. So Phelps became the number one over corrections and public safety. It's supposed to have been split. And then I became over corrections. But Phelps loved correction. He didn't like state police. So he stayed over there where I was instead of going where he should have been. Okay? So, but I had no problems with CPAW. Um, see, we got along quite well after I introduced myself accordingly. And uh, then I was fortunate. Matter of fact, I just carved out what I wanted. I was over probation parole, I was over internal affairs. I did all the legislative, I did all the politics. So and you was great at it. So you were really you was great at it. I, yeah, thank you. You you was a you was a mover the shaker. You thank you. And you know, and and that's how you, the base was built, I guess you can say. And it ain't what you know, it's who you know. But you got to also know something to know somebody. It ain't all about just knowing and don't have the proper education, the credentials. So I had those to back it up, so it wasn't no problem. But, but when you met this beautiful woman named Freya Anderson Harkins, I think at the time. Right? I met her at Southern University. <laughs> so how, how did she play a role in all this upcoming? Because you over here running things. No, that's prior. I met her prior to that. Prior to that, okay. Yeah. I was with a program called Treatment Alternative Street Crime, which was TAS. I knew all of them. Right. Southern initiated a criminal justice program. Southern had a criminal justice program for LSU. LSU has expanded, taken over per se. Southern's program is not as at large as LSU, but Southern initiated a criminal justice program before LSU. So I was hired with the criminal justice section department at Southern. So I was commuting between Southern and my regular job, which was in TAS in uh, New Orleans. So I was going to put a, I was putting a seminar together, and the name, the name of the seminar was "Inmates Challenge the Criminal Justice System." 
Well, Freya was was hired also at the same time, and um, she had been working at Gotchos. The guy who was over the program, ironic enough, his name was Hawkins. There was no relation between the two of them. Ronnie Hawkins was his name. And so he hired both of us, and I had been there for a little while. And so he came in and introduced me to Freya and told me that Freya would be working with me. And my statement was, I guess I have to do this by myself then. Because <laughs> you ain't going to let that work out. <laughs> so her statement was, you go straight to it. You go straight to Do whatever you got to do. <laughs> and so we didn't get along at all in the beginning. Not at all. Well. <laughs> Why not? Because well, of his smart Alex mouth. <laughs> When he said he he guessed he'd be doing it by himself, oh, I said, he did that to you? Yes, yes. So I said, I guess that's exactly what you're gonna do by yourself. So I didn't, I wouldn't even go in the office. <laughs> he, he spoke it, huh? right? Yeah, what you say? I wasn't gonna do it. I'm true to power. Whatever I say, I repeat it. Well, well, why, why would you make that statement? Because I feel, that's the way I felt that way. Just say the female. No, no, he's just a smart ass. Smart ass. So you know. <laughs> So he really, he really knew he liked it. In that's what he was. So he had to, you're supposed to put a syllabus together, and I didn't do. I wasn't doing the syllabus. Time was creeping. You had to get authorization for a, an entirely new, new course. Program. That's right. New course right, added right. when the semester had started already. And I, yeah. and he didn't know how to put that together. No. I guess he knew how to do. No. I guess he knew how to do. Right. <laughs> so. Got a call, I need to meet with you. No, what had happened was, it got down to the why. <laughs> I mean, it really got down to the why. <laughs> so that's what started, I guess it did. So, it was Mardi Gras weekend. Everybody partying off Monday, Tuesday, what have you. I'm up here in Baton Rouge, trying to put something together with an old ditto, ditto machine with that purple stuff running. And that was Fred in the office and Alma and some others. So they broke down and felt sorry for me. <laughs> and that's how we met. All he, all he had was an idea. He did not have one word on a sheet of paper. I had to take it to all kind of department heads, administration at Southern, get approval and everything, do the research on it, everything. But my idea. And he did nothing. <laughs> It was my idea. I'm a facilitator. <laughs> you got to understand that. I'm strictly a facilitator. You're going to take credit for the idea. You didn't put it together, but he came up my with the idea. idea. <laughs> That's all you needed. Huh? That's what got them started. Huh? So the seminar sim 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 was twice a week. We had a lot of kids from LSU attending. Oh, it, was, it was for college students. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, was, it was a criminal justice. It's, it was. Uh, Look, this was a bad seminar. It was called Inmates Challenge to Criminal Justice System. Okay, now what inmates were? What role they played? I bought inmates in from Angola. Oh, okay. I bought Sneed in, who was in from Murder. I bought Wilbur Rudolph. Wilbur Rudolph. And I, I bought in killers from inmates. Okay. They came in and they challenged the criminal justice system. They said what was going on in corrections, what had happened to them, and the whole bit. Then my next segment was the police, wasn't it? Yeah, you did police, police attorney corrections. Then I had attorneys, defense, as well as prosecutors. Then we had the judges. 
Then we had the legislators. This is a different week, different times, and they were all black. I want to show them kids that there were black people in this system also. Everything was black. And then, at the end, the legislators came in. Then at the end, the inmates came back and put the kibosh on it. So you gave everyone opportunity hey, to come cut it up, perspective. back and forth. Yeah, it was like a program. Did yeah. y'all continue that program? How long did it last? Just that one semester? It was just that one semester. Yeah. That should have been made part of the system. Yeah, well, system. Southern, being Southern. Okay. Yeah, I got to do with that with LSU. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, the LSU expanded with their program with just, criminal justice. Overtake, overtake. And it, it, it expanded itself. So, you know, I uh, when I went with corrections, uh, uh, I think my second week or so, I went up to Angola. And I spent four days and three nights up there. I slept on the grounds. Because I was getting all kind of feedback from inmates. This was going on. That was going on. Well, in my position, I found quite early that wardens and people in authority is going to tell you what you think you want to hear. Hmm. So my position is I go deal with the inmates. I go straight to the weight pit because that's where all the deals are being cut. What do you call it? The weight pit. That's where you're picking up weights. Yeah, you got the skinheads over there, the errands over here, and the moose over here. But everybody got their own segments in the institution, what they're doing. Unbeknown to a lot of people, penitentiary is like a city. Same thing in the cities going on in the penitentiary. Drugs and prostitution and everything else. I know. I know. I've been there. So I would go straight to the weak pit and ask, all right, who, who, who got strong on me today? Who's doing this? Name? Mr. Rivers. I said, look, man, don't be gaming me. I know the game. And so that's the way I build my rapport with the guys. So they tell me all the things that's going on and what's happening. With, in the institution, what we're supposed to be doing for them. Then after I deal with them, then I go talk to the ward. This is what I understand is going on. Yeah, you were under corrections was under court order. They were on a consent decree. Palazzo picked it up from E Garden West. They were on a consent decree, which Hayes Williams versus Department of Corrections. When I went in, that's a, he's right. That's the issue. When I went in, everything was segregated. The prison was the oh yeah, blacks slept one way, whites slept one, eight different. This is the, in the mid, the late seventies. Yeah, early seventies, early seventies. I went in, I went in April the first, nineteen seventy-six. The consent decree was the result of segregated facilities. In the prison. In the prison. Oh yeah. Women that worked there were not allowed beyond the gate, number one. You can go in the mail room, administrate in front, but couldn't go out beyond the gate. Black, blacks, they had prison guards, which are called trustees, who carried rifles. Yes. They was the overseer, I guess you could say, over the inmates who were working in the field. Oh, no. The prisons, the prisoners themselves was trustees. Carrying guns. Carrying guns yeah. in Angola. Yeah. They're the overseers over the other prisoners. Who was working so, in the field. So you, you created a lot of hostility out there. Well, they had a deal that, they had a deal that if an inmate try to escape and you stop them from escape, you get your time cut somewhat too. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, it, it, it was unbelievable. Segregated food, segregated muscles, segregated eating, segregated inmates. So you're talking about Hunt's prison correction? One hundred at the time. Just Angola. Angola. It was Hunt. It was Angola, De Quincey, and the women's prison. That was it. That's all they had. Yeah, the work release in New Orleans. Had Beauregard. Beauregard was at the National Guard down on Saint Saint Claude. That was a work release deal. Then you had a work release deal up in Pineville, I think, up by Alec. Then we had one over the Quincy way. But for as the walls or Bob White, what have you, it was Angola. Angola is, is located on eighteen thousand acres of land. And at that time we had over five thousand some inmates. Five thousand. Over five thousand. And a murder rate. And the murder rate when I came when I came when I came in the murder rate was working was in the thirties, thirty one, thirty two killings a year. Hold on. The prison had high murder had higher murder rates than on the outside. 30, they, 30. And, they, and they got people that fully protected them. Yeah. You 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 sound somewhat amazed. <laughs> <laughs> this is the correctional system. <laughs> They need to correct it. Yeah. There was no such a thing as corrections at that time. Rehabilitation, it was control. Uh, when we came in, I think it was running 31 and 32 killings a year. And I'm not talking about stabbings. God knows how many that was, but I'm talking about actual killings at Angola. 31, 32. All oh, those fights. Everybody had these shanks and stuff to kill it, stabbing and stuff and fighting. But Actually, killing was 31, 32 years. So that's that's all inmates. Uh, inmate on inmates. White, the Europeans, the Italians, no matter who they were. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, so it, it was the most deadly place in the United States. It was. Right? It was. It was considered that. It was labeled. Uh, it was labeled that Parchment was right behind in Mississippi. Yeah, and when we when we left, when we left, I think our killings down was about three or four a year. The first year, Maggio became Ross. Maggio became warden of Angola, and uh, Maggio's our position was, and his structures was. He went in and locked it down. Then we let up on it easily, slowly but surely, and got control of it. But Angola was run, running rapid at that time. You said that drug, prostitution, and everything else you could think of. Anything you want outside, you can get inside. So. The there's only one way to get in, the people working there have to be bringing it in. <laughs> so that was... It's still the case. <laughs> well, you, you know, we had visitors also doing that. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's unique. One thing, in the, you know, there are some very smart people in jail. I mean very, very smart. And they have to understand that. Uh, they did an expo, I think, on... American greed recently about Kersey McCall Nix, who's locked up right now. He's got life. He's out of Oklahoma. His mother and father both were federal judges in Oklahoma. Okay? The Peter Muley, there's a bar, was a bar in New Orleans called Muley's. His father owned the bar. Peter Muley went to St. Aloysius, one of the prestige Catholic schools in New Orleans. Peter Muley was part of what they call the Dixie Mafia. 
and they worked from the Panhandle all the way up to Brownsville, Texas, killing and robbing. They robbed Pat O'Brien on Easter Sunday, who owned, who was the owner of Oak Pat O'Brien's restaurant in the quarters, and killed him on Easter Sunday. We had them in institutions. We had individuals that doing eight hundred and some years, seven hundred some years. Eight hundred some years. Yeah, seven hundred years, five hundred some years. Yeah, yeah. That's not considered life sentence. That is a life sentence in essence. It is. But they, the judges give it to them. They passed a law which is still in effect in a lot of states. And I think it's still in this state. The Multiple Offenders Act. Uh, act. We call that the bitch. Three. Three strikes. Three strikes you out, regardless was, of what your offense may be. That was put in effect by President Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton in 1994. That was the, the crime, mm -hmm. the criminal crime, ominous crime criminal. act. Mm -hmm. That did a mass incarceration of our community. That's right. Yes. From then, from that point forward, Harry Connick out of New Orleans was using the going and coming, and it didn't matter what your offense may be. You had could have been a trespasser. And trespassing could be a felon or um, misdemeanor. So if you got a felon trespassing, and then you got a burglar, and you got another trespass, that's three times. Fourth time you out, you can get life. And they got people doing time right now for stealing a shovel or something like this, right? I mean, minor stuff doing life because number one, for years, and I've been preaching this for years. A lot of our problems in the institutions are drug offenses. And we need to treat drug offenders as rehab. They don't need jail because they're burglarizing armed robbery to support their habits. And we need to look at it like that. But they don't. But you know, I, do you think that bill was uh, President Clinton uh, signed in, 19, I think, 1994? Uh, that was intentionally put in place to... Well, it was, it was get tough on crime. Lock up. But it affected our community it did. worse than anybody. Right, and, and the, I was a part of that because I was the first drug czar, one of the first drug czars in the country. And that was under George Bush, and Bennett was the uh, head of it. And I was appointed... Jay Bennett Johnson? Jay Bennett Johnson, no. Uh, Bennett was a, uh, oh boy, he was appointed by Bush and he came down and met with Lindy Boggs, Sidney and I, and I got appointed as the first drug czar in New Orleans, which is one of the worst jobs I've ever had <laughs> in my whole life. What, what made that one of the worst jobs? Don't call names. I'm not going to call names. Because <laughs> they're still alive. <laughs> Look, that job was so bad. <laughs> that he had a city car and whenever unmarked un city car and whenever I'd go down or before I would get in the car I'd make him drive it around the block first before I get in <laughs> so I'll blow up on you you go drive it right, around right. <laughs> right that's how bad it was so what, what, what you're telling me is that the real drug dealers had to protect them not the street drug dealers, the real drug the dealers. The real drug dealers. The, the, the big time business people. Were in law enforcement. Let's uh, put it that way. We're not going to call names. But it was so bad. <laughs> Griffin reported to Sydney. 
about what was going on. And Cindy said, no, man. He said, yes, this is what's happening. And we need to shut this down before we all did. <laughs> That's how bad it was. You know, and I went to Sydney. Cindy said, well, did you go tell us? I said, wait a minute, man, back up. You want me to wake up dead tomorrow? Wake up dead. <laughs> I said, let me tell you something, my friend. It's budget time. I said, you need to write this department out of the budget. You ain't got no money. We were, we were hurting for finance anyway. <laughs> so okay. you, you, you put Joseph out of job. I, ooh. That's how we ended up in Michigan. I said, you need to write this, write this out. And uh, all I want to do is be able to draw some unemployment compensation. And the budget time, I think, was November so. So no more job. I called December. I called number one professor over the Department of Corrections, I mean, criminal justice in Michigan. I said, hey, man, I need to come back to school. He said, when you ready? I said, whenever available. He said, come on. So I reported back up to Michigan State during Christmas time. For your own life. And I reported in the middle of a semester when everybody else who had to go through the Ph.D. program had to go before a committee and everything. You, you, I, I just reported <laughs> and I got in the program. Well, well, a lot of people got upset when I first reported. Well, I guess they did. You know? And they wanted to know who am I and what's going on. So uh, I was standing up there one day. Old professor came up, Hoffman came up. Mr. Rivers, I heard so much about you. I said, yeah. He said, uh, how did you get in this program? I said, I applied. But you didn't come before the committee. He said, well, you got a lot of experience. I said, yeah. I said, well, what happens is you got two choices. You either work or you go on welfare. I decided to work. And so I got in the program. They didn't like it. And then the director one time asked you, and I got out. I did everything but write, write the Ph.D. A.B.D. Huh? P.E.D. All, all but dissertation. Dissertation, yeah. Yeah. And anyway, I got angry. Okay. Quit. What? Talk about... What? The Black Panthers and Desire Project. Oh, shoot. Just quickly. We don't need the Black Panthers names. took over the portion of Desire Project, a segment. In New Orleans. In New Orleans. Well, I knew the, the young man who was in charge. And the police department had surrounded the thing, and they was getting ready to storm it. So I went out there that night and went through and knocked on the door. And uh, they opened up the door and threw all kinds of shotguns in my face. And I went in and I talked to them. I said, man, they're getting ready to blow you all away. I said, y'all need to, you know, give it up. And so I was fortunate enough to prevail for them to. They didn't want to kill them. Oh, they were going to kill them. There wasn't no one to be. Yeah. They were going to kill them. Okay. So you were negotiating their life. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if we want to negotiate, but I did talk to. Uh, his name was Minor, out of Houston, Texas. And uh, he was going to Dillard. And and he was a student? He, he, his brother was a student at Dillard. And I knew, he was young. Yeah. So, you know, I knew about that. And then... Corrections, how many people and how many blacks were able to get promoted in different positions? Uh, at that time, there was no black supervisors in probation and parole. So we talk about in the, in the late 70s, 70s. Yeah, late 70s. 70s. No, no supervisors. 
The most she could have been was a probation officer one, a probation officer two. But they got um, assistant director, deputy director, regional director, all that stuff, and head supervisor. It wasn't available for anybody. No blacks, no blacks. So I met with the head of uh, probation parole and uh, the union, which was ASME and civil service. And I said, we need some blacks. So at that time, it was a rule of three. So you had to be one of the three to watch come. So I put the deal together and went down and got number eight, who was a black guy, and promoted him over the others. So I was your first black supervisor. Are you familiar with the Angola Three, Herman Wallace, yeah, they, Fox, and yeah, they, King? Yeah, they had them locked down when I got up. They supposed they killed a, a god. Right. Supposedly they killed. Supposedly they killed a god. I've always questioned, and I've. I've always felt, number one, I've never had problems with inmates. I go to Angola and I don't have security with me. I don't want them with me. I walk the yard by myself. When I was deputy director, deputy warden up at, in, in Michigan, I would go in the yard anytime, at night, day, you know, I don't want security with me. I don't need security. Inmates are smart enough to know if you're scared. If you're scared to be in this business, you shouldn't be in this business, you know? So when I first came on board, I met with, I was supposed to have been the leaders. And I told them, I said, look, man, let me tell y'all something. You ain't got no hostage here. Don't even think about it. So all y'all gonna do is make my wife rich. <laughs> okay, ain't no hostage here, you know? And so inmates would treat you with respect if you treat them with respect. My job was, I consider myself to be a glamified keeper of people like a custodian. Whatever happened with that inmate is between him or her, person upstairs in the court. Y'all got to work it out. Meanwhile, I got you. And I'm gonna treat you like a human being. I'm gonna give you your respect. I'm not gonna dog you. I ain't gonna call you out your name. And they can read that. And I had no problems. And I've always felt every time you hear about a correction officer got shot, got jabbed, or something happened to him or what have you, they put themselves in harm's way. You hate to say it like that. But it's true. Because number one, in Angola, there were 80 guys sleeping in, in one barracks. We had one prison guard in there and one outside. And if they want to take you hostage, they can take you hostage. I didn't worry about that kind of stuff. Because out that 80, maybe one or two fools in there, but that other 78, they ain't gonna let you mess up their goodies. Them other two, they, gonna, they ain't gonna let them mess over me. And I felt that way. Them 78 gonna protect me over them too. And so I had no problems with them, man. Matter of fact, when, we, when they get out, I don't see them on the street, friend. I'll be at Mardi Gras. I'm carrying, she's carrying. And they walk up behind me, Mr. Rivers, Mr. Rivers. I turn around and look, oh shit. <laughs> And that's the first thing that come out of my mouth. Hey, man, when did you get out? <laughs> oh, I got out six months ago, because I, I figured I didn't know it. <laughs> but he could have done me some harm then. They don't do me, they done me no harm, honest to God. You didn't, do, you didn't do no harm then. I didn't have any problems. The correctional officer had problems with me, with them, because I put the call to walk. When I would go down the catwalk, they'd be called, hey, boy, nigga, and this, and that. Hey. I say, look, man, let me tell you something. I'll take your physical, uh, your, your verbal abuse, 
don't think about your physical abuse. Don't touch me. Because you can give your soul to God because the rest is mine. Don't even think about that. So I didn't mind him calling me boy and all that stuff. Just don't touch me. And we, I had respect and I gave them respect. And I had no problems. And looking at the crime of youth juveniles today, what would you say about how was crime at the time that you were in that capacity as a probation officer? Hmm. Well, my caseload was a heavy caseload. I only saw them after they got in trouble, per se. And they were shipping them off to what they call Scotlandville. LTI. LTI. L no, no, LTI. It was called. But it was the same place, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, at LTI, but it was called right. something else. Uh, Nephus, I think, was out there at the time. Um, Juvenile today, what the problem is, there's too many guns on the street, number one. Number two, there's no controls. You got, it, it, a lot of it goes back to the parents. You got teenage, uh, teenagers having teenagers, having babies, okay? And it's a cycle. Can't break, you're having problems breaking this particular cycle. And anytime you have an eight-year-old kid bring a gun to Park Elementary School the other day, finally, how'd he get the gun? Where'd the gun come from? That kind of stuff. You know, we didn't have guns like that back in the day. If you're going to fight, you're going to fight with your fist or cut a knife. What no guns out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're jigging with your knife. I mean, but normally it's a fight. And but, but what are we offering children to do? We're not. That was one reason for show-offs. And give them a place to go. Give them something to do. Get involved. And see, the drug problem, we've always had drug problems. But back then, there was an unwritten law that you didn't sell drugs to your mamas and to kids. There was a certain element in the community we all know were drug addicts and what have you. But they respected other individuals. You know, Today, they're selling their babies for drugs and stuff. But they legalized, they, the system just control it now. They always control it, but they really... Well, they find they finally going to make money off of what they've been doing to people. They've been shipping people to jail for nothing. And now they, want to go to, they don't want to go to jail so they can make something. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the kids today, it's just... I mean, the older you get, I guess, the more reserved you get, the more frightened you get. I guess if I was still a juvenile probation officer, I wouldn't have the reservations that I have right now. Because these kids out here are frightening now. Yes, they are. Because you don't know where they're coming from. I mean, people are frightening with these guns. They're shooting a minute. Look at that deal that happened the other day with the girl, 16-year-old was killed. Whatever, I missed that. Was that school? Was that old? She wasn't, it was off the school grounds at Glen Oaks. Oh, Glen Oaks, where the shooting took place. Yeah. She, the mama and the brother come back there and he jumps out the car with an AR and spray the house. The people in the house shot back and they killed her and wounded the mama and the brother. Crazy. Don't come back and spray up somebody's house in broad daylight with an AR. That's, and he's 20 years old. She was 16, and the mama was part of it. 
So the mentality, that cycle, I mean, it's a crazy cycle. You know, you got the case in Georgia. I mean, that kind of stuff, it makes you angry. It makes you but, angry. But you, you've been around long enough, you should be past that stage. You just noticed the system. Huh? How do you get past racism? How do you get past? Easy. You can't. You can't. Uh, and that's what's wrong when you ask about schools. No, the school system, and it isn't just Louisiana, it's across the country. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, schools should be here to educate. One, we have to start at a university level and change the curriculum there. There is no reason for anyone to be able to graduate from a college or university okay, right. and not know that races do not exist. It's not a part of the classification system. So if you are a professor at anybody's university, you should know that races don't exist. Race is a social construct, but racism does. So one, you need to be teaching that. When you teach that race doesn't exist, you also teach that there is no hierarchy, that people are all equal. The classification system does not say whites are better, then come Asians, then come somebody else. No, there's no hierarchy. Homo sapien sapien, that's what we are, everybody. So the university has to teach that. And everybody that comes out of there needs to know. Once you, and then I go into myself, once you get rid of the distortion, the lies that we've been teaching, then you create curriculum where it is inclusive so that you no longer omit the contributions that everybody has made to the world, then maybe you can stop the stereotyping, right. the superiority, the inferiority, the hatred and denial. But you, that ain't gonna happen in this country. I don't see that happen because the system well, they created is, what do well, you call it? Put the gun to your head now. If, if you don't believe, you have, I mean, you have to have hope some kind of way. I mean, and I'm with you on that now. I, I'm with you on that. That's why we, we keep and this I'm, thing going. We're I'm putting hope. my guns all in one in, in a couple of baskets. One is reverse migration for power. And the two is education. We have to retrain teachers. But God, you wasn't about that years ago. Right? But that's why we have to redo curriculum. We have to rewrite curriculum for our children. And when we start teaching them how to be humane humans, just because you're born homo sapien sapien doesn't mean that you're humane. When they divvied up Africa and gave it to European countries, colonized Africa, when they brought African people here and enslaved them, they had, I think it was Herodotus that says, the people that created our greatest arts, we now enslave. The ones who gave us knowledge. So they had to demean us in order to prove their worth and their power. They had to call us savages and heathens. The two greatest institutions in the world that contribute to racism are religion, religion. and education. It is. 
perpetuating. Yes, it does. They're the greatest perpetuators of racism. Everybody else picks up on their coattails, but that's why I can't tackle religion because that's that's totally breaking people's minds up. But we can begin to tackle education. And once we start teaching the truth through education, maybe people will then be able to look at religion differently. I'm not, I'm, I don't knock anybody's. Whatever your belief is, whatever your faith is that keeps you together, more power to you. But you need to know the truth of how they all started, where they started. Use it as your faith. But understand that it's been used. Every it's a business now, and they use it to control people. Every conflict we've been in has been around religion. Every. Or economics. Economic religion. Or, or both go hand in hand. Right. And, and that is a no-win problem yeah. deal, okay? Yeah. I mean, when we, her brother and them was living and stuff, we had, my son was Muslim. Her daddy is Seventh-day Adventist. Brother was Seventh-day Adventist. She's supposed to have been Catholic. I'm supposed to have been Catholic. Uh, who else? Uncle Lutheran. I mean, we belong to every different religion except Judaism. We didn't have, I don't know. And we couldn't talk about, I, and hold up, we didn't talk about no religion in there. Because everybody got their own deal. How they going to deal with it, okay? I don't mind your religion as long as it don't fringe upon me. Even though you have all this information, again, young people don't even believe it. They can read it on the phones. You can tell them about it. Uh, I've had several young African-Americans come through and they'll see various pictures on the wall or whatever. Uh, in fact, I have a room that I call the slave room, but it's, it's pictures um, of Tom Feelings from his book and pictures of the Middle Passage and all and colored and white signs and that kind of stuff. And so the guy said, uh, did that really happen? <laughs> I said, yes, it not only happened, I lived through a whole lot of it. <laughs> you know, they don't believe it. You're ancient, lady, you're ancient. So, you know, it's it's one thing to live it to live it and, and know what's happened, but it's another that we have to teach. That's where you go back to Sankofa. You need to know your past in order to build your future. And unless we do that, we're just going to continue to make the same mistake. Well, that's it. <laughs> thank you all. Once again, I'm going to thank you all for being here, participating, and allowing us to come to your wonderful home located here in the Baton Rouge area. And it really was a joy, a pleasure, a treat. We got much more than we bargained for. I mean, it's been great. It's been a great day in both stories, y'all coming together, travels. And uh, so welcome Ms. Freya and your husband Griffin uh, for allowing us to be here today. Thank you. It was our pleasure. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye, Griffin. <laughs> man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.